I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, June 18th, 2012. Yeah, we got a uh, Mark Driscoll exclusive today. It won't be exclusive to us. We'll break the story and we'll sure it'll get around the internet not going to want to miss it. It'll be the second half of uh, hour number one. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So here's the question I have for you, just to kind of start off the day. Um, does the Bible teach that pastors are to make themselves worthy to receive a specific vision from God as to how to do church in a particular uh, part of the country or a city or whatever so that they can take a city or whatever? Well, the Bible doesn't teach that, okay? There's a popular, um, growing in popularity, too, practice among the seeker-driven churches as part of their its core methodology, and it's called vision casting. Vision casting. And this is going to be one of the things that I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about and letting you kind of hear for yourself. You, know, I, you may have heard some of these quotes in the past, but we're going to take this all down today, and we're going to break it up into its component parts, let you hear the teaching itself from the people who are promoting it and the end result of it. The end result of it is uh, going to be the type of quote that we're going to hear from uh, Mark Driscoll today where he's literally bragging. This is from a uh, Acts 29 uh, you know, lecture that he gave to a bunch of church planting pastors. Where in this, So this goes back to October of 2007 where, where Driscoll is literally bragging about throwing people off the bus and running them over with the bus. I, I wish I, I could say I was exa exaggerating, but I'm not. Um, and all of this is the fruit of a very dangerous 
false teaching in the church, in these seeker-driven churches. And that is, is that God has an individual and unique vision that he wants to give a particular pastor. He needs to make himself worthy, show God that he's serious about receiving this vision from God. And then once he receives that vision, anybody who opposes the vision, well, they're opposing God himself. That is not an overstatement. I've made the point before, and I'll continue making this point. Anybody who claims that they're receiving visions from God, anybody who says, you know, listen, I've got a word from God, I've got a direct vision from God, and they proceed to tell you what that is, if you oppose them, if you challenge them, if you question them, if you critique them, that is perceived as and interpreted as literally opposing God himself. Again, that's not an overstatement. And as the program develops today, you're going to see for yourself, you know, and hear for yourself. Actually, you're here for yourself. This is radio, not television. But you're going to hear for yourself exactly how this concept is inculcated, how it's taught, and and then ultimately how it's defended, and how these guys are taught that anybody who challenges them, anybody who questions them or the vision, they are an agent of the devil. They are a wolf. They are somebody who must go. They cannot stay. And the problem is, is that, well, number one, the Bible doesn't teach the pastors are to receive visions from God on how to do church a particular way in a particular setting. Nowhere does the Bible ever say that. Secondly, the Bible does give us positive, affirmative definitions under which we are to exercise church discipline. Okay, And what you're going to find here is, is that those who are brought under church discipline, who are literally excommunicated, that's the right word. This is a seeker-driven form of excommunication. Those who are excommunicated are not done so on any biblical grounds. We'll review those grounds today uh, as the program develops. So, I mean, that's there's some other things that we can talk about in this, but I want to prepare you right now for what we're talking about. And if I sound a little bit mm, serious, if I sound a little bit focused, it's because I am. It's actually a very complicated program today, and it took me a couple of days to pull all the resources together, break down the sound bites that I wanted to play for you in order to basically coherently and accurately, accurately convey this doctrine and teaching and and show you why this is wrong. But we're going to start off with, uh, well, something from the prophet Jeremiah, from the prophet Jeremiah that I think absolutely applies to this day. The same concepts that Jeremiah is going after in this chapter are the same things that we are facing right now, and we must bring these types of passages to bear against the false teaching that we're seeing. Jeremiah chapter 23, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes in verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord, Yahweh. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. 
Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is a referring to Jesus here. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us who brought up uh, the people out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and fed the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Concerning the prophets, Isaiah, not Isaiah, Jeremiah writes, My heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all of the land. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Jeremiah 23:16 I think is a clear passage against vision casters. These so-called prophet pastors and leaders who claim to be receiving visions from God that they are to cast to their people, they have not heard from God. 
They have not heard the counsel of the Lord. If they had, they would be turning people away from wickedness and bringing them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They would be rightly handling God's word, but they're not. They chronically, habitually, wickedly twist God's word and make it say things that it doesn't in order to preach to people's felt needs so they can draw a crowd and call that crowd a church. But drawing a crowd is not the equivalent of building the church. The church is built by sinners who have been brought to repentance and sorrow for their sin and faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. True disciples of Jesus Christ are taught God's word as it is to be understood rightly. They are preached God's word using sound doctrine, not using false doctrine. They are taught God's word in context, according to what it really means, not according to, well, out of context verses designed to create the impression that it's a biblical teaching so that you can puff people's egos up and show them how to read themselves into every passage of scripture. That's not, that. when somebody does that, it is clear by their false teaching and Bible twisting that they have not received a vision from God. These people are literally driving away God's sheep, literally driving them away and punishing them for biblically challenging these false dreams, these false prophecies, these false visions. And what have we got now? We've got a church full of wicked worldliness. You can't tell the difference between the seeker-driven churches in the world because there is no difference. All of these people are telling the people in their churches, God is for you. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life while never confronting them with the fact that they are under the wrath of God if they persist in sin and unbelief unless they are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They let everybody know, oh, it's it, listen, God wants you to have a great life, and all you've got to do is apply these simple principles to your life, and presto, blammo, God will bless you, and you'll have an upgrade in your life. All you got to do is audaciously circle the promises in Scripture. All you have to do is pray a sun-stand-still prayer. All you got to do is be like our prophet pastor who's received a vision from God. See, it happened to him. It'll happen to you. None of that is Christianity. And yet these people have the audacity to literally wander around the countryside claiming that they've received visions from God. And yet they haven't. And they prove this over and again by how miserably they twist and mangle God's word. It's time for Christians, and I'm specifically speaking not just to Christians, but to you Christian men out there. It's time for us to rise up and say, enough. This is not biblical. These men have not seen or heard God's voice. These visions are not from God. They are from the devil himself, and they are destroying Christ's church rather than building up. They are scattering Christ's sheep rather than you know, drawing them together. They are causing Christ's sheep to go without being fed and being cared for rather than them being fed and cared for by these so-called visionary leaders within Christianity. This new, these new methodologies that, that Rick Warren assures us all 
that people that pastors can employ without compromising the message is patently false. These these methods are not taught in Scripture. They are not in accord with sound biblical doctrine, sound biblical ecclesiology, and the pastoral office. And the people who put themselves into these positions claim to be visionary leaders, have a vision from God. They become little Hitlers. They become little Mussolinis. They become unquestionable. To question them is to get yourself thrown out of those congregations in the most unsanctimonious way possible. And none of that is in accord with what Scripture teaches regarding church discipline. <sighs> Sorry, that's just the lead-off for today. Now, I'm looking at how we're going to um, break this down. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a second here, and I'm going to read another tweet from Rick Warren, okay, just to demonstrate. Rick Warren is at the top of this seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement, okay? He is the pope of purpose-driven-ism. And yet every single time this man opens up the biblical text, he ends up not only mangling it, but literally commits the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the very name of God by saying, by, it's, it's unbelievable. In fact, he sent out a tweet over the weekend where he, get this, he literally took a swipe at Jesus. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to play our purpose-driven music read you this tweet and I'll show you what's wrong with it. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and we'll dive right into the Mark Driscoll quote that has got me so incensed at the moment. And then I'll spend time laying out for you what it is these people are taught and why this is not scriptural. Here we go. Purpose, it keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas. Everyone else has a purpose. So what's mine? Oh, look! Here's a penny! It's from the year I was born. It's a sign! I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know. That's from Avenue Q. That's our purpose-driven update music whenever we do a Rick Warren update. So over the weekend, uh, Rick Warren sent out this tweet. Okay, It's hard to believe that you can commit such egregious blasphemy in 160 characters or less, but Rick Warren apparently is gifted in this department. Here's the name. Here's what the the tweet says. It says nothing, and the word nothing is all caps. So he's, that's the you know how you bold things on Twitter. Nothing is more debilitating than self-pity. Quote, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned and despised by people. Psalm 22, verse 6. Hmm. So nothing is more debilitating than self-pity. And I'm assuming by the way he's put this, that self-pity is bad. You, you don't want your life to be debilitated by self-pity. And apparently Psalm 22, verse 6, is teaching this important purpose-driven concept. But see, this goes back to the segment that we did last week, where Rick Warren took a swipe 
at those who would read Christ and his cross into all of Scripture, despite the fact that that's what Scripture says. Um, that's what Jesus taught. Okay, See, Rick Warren, when he reads Scripture, he doesn't find Jesus there. He finds himself. He finds relevant life tips, things to make your life better. And apparently self-pity is a bad thing. Self-pity gets in the way of you, well, finding and experiencing and doing your purpose in life. And Psalm 22, verse 6 apparently teaches that, right? Wrong. Do you know who Psalm 22 is about? Now, I've already made the claim here just a second ago that all the Scripture is about Jesus. But some passages of Scripture are more explicitly about Jesus. In fact, there's an entire segment of the Psalms that prophesy and speak specifically to Jesus, and biblical scholars refer to them as Messianic Psalms. Psalm 22 being one of the chief pinnacle Messianic Psalms. Why? Because in Psalm 22, King David, okay, King David, long before Jesus was ever born, conceived of the Virgin Mary, King David prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, literally prophesies details of the crucifixion of Jesus. You cannot read Psalm 22 without, without going, whoa. How did he so explicitly see these details regarding Jesus' crucifixion? The answer is, it's clearly miraculous. I mean, this is one of those super spooky, highly detailed prophecies regarding the crucifixion of our Lord. Let me read. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross, prophesied more than a thousand years before Jesus was born by his ancestor, King David. And Jesus is constantly referred to as the Son of God or the Son of David, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Even the words of those who were on the ground mocking Jesus are embedded right here in Psalm 22. Right? Verse 9. Yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have made. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion, and I am poured out like water, and 
All my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life and the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The psalm goes on, but you get what I'm saying. You can't read Psalm 22 and not know who this psalm is about. This psalm is a messianic psalm, not just in the sense that it's really about Jesus, because it really is, but this is about the pinnacle of history itself, the crucifixion of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And each and every one of us is complicit in this crime. Here it is described in detail some of the very words that were spoken by Jesus as well as those who were there mocking him and the details of his crucifixion. His clothes being divided up and divvied out, cast by lots, right? His hands and his feet being pierced. His cry of dereliction from the cross. That's what Psalm 22 is about. It's a miraculous prophecy regarding our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is prophesied here in Psalm 22, verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock. This is not a moment of self-pity that we are to psychologize. But Rick Warren finds in this verse, quote, again, this is the tweet, nothing is more debilitating than self-pity. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned and despised by the people. I'm sorry, but I have no other way to interpret Rick Warren's tweet than this, that if he were being crucified next to Jesus, he would have been the thief who refused to repent and continued to basically hurl insults at Jesus. That tweet is a spit in the face of Jesus while he is being crucified. And that is not an overstatement. That is reality. And Rick Warren is the top mafia kingpin in the seeker-driven movement. And what you're about to hear on the other side of this break from Mark Driscoll, well, Driscoll is a disciple of Rick Warren, a disciple of his leadership principles, practices, and ideas. The two are on the same team. They're part of the same network. Rick Warren being the five-star general of purpose-driven, seeker-driven leadershipism, and while well, Mark Driscoll, the up-and-comer, who is at least a second two-star general on his way to being in charge of the whole kit and caboodle, should the Lord tarry that long. But I point all this out because these men claim that they've received visions from God. You heard Rick Warren talking about it last week, how, you know, you know, Blackaby was an important thing. You got to find what God is doing and join him. And of course, he's done that because he's making the world a better place. All this social justice stuff that he's doing. 
And you can't challenge him because to challenge him is to challenge God himself. We are in dire, dire, dark days, folks. What these men are doing is destroying the church, not building the kingdom of God. All right, we're up on our first break, and when we come back, we're going to continue along this theme. And you're going to hear for yourself Mark Driscoll from October of 2007 pretty much bragging and gloating over the fact that um, that he throws people under the bus and then runs them over if they challenge his vision. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to hear it to believe it. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no, nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now. How do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. We're back. Warning, if your pastor has assembled a leadership team and is casting vision, you've got a big problem on your hands. He's claiming to receive direct revelation from God, and, well, he hasn't. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I know you're in your 
in living color cult of personality that's our music for uh when we do an update with mark driscoll so we're going to go back in time but i'm not going to use our time machine today to do so we'll just do it using audio we're going to go back in time to october of 2007 and we're going to listen to mark driscoll addressing a group of acts 29 church planting leaders and we're going to hear him talk about what he does when somebody is there and they're not in step with his vision. Here's Mark Driscoll. Keep in mind, this is to a group of Acts 29 pastors. Here we go. Here's what I've learned. You you cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, Too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, (laughs) and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, what? Hear that again. And notice the little chuckle there. He's bragging about this. There, There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time. There's a <laughs> dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And with God's grace, it'll be a mountain. Um. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the- Get on the bus or get run over by the bus. That means you need to subscribe to, get behind, and make his vision come, into pass, come to pass, or you're going to get run over by the bus. The bus ain't going to stop. And uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a guy who is like, look, we love you, but this is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. They got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. They got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There are people who will uh, be on the bus, leaders and helpers and servants. They're awesome. There's also just sometimes nice people who sit on the bus and shut up. Um, they're not helping or hurting. Just let them ride along. Um, you know what I'm saying? But don't look at the nice people that are just going to sit on the bus and shut their mouth and think, I need you to lead the mission. They're never going to. At the very most, you'll give them a job to do and they'll serve somewhere and help out in a minimal way. If someone can sit in a place that hasn't been on mission for a really long time, they are by definition not a leader. And so they're never going to lead. Uh, You need to gather a whole new core. I'll tell you guys what, too. You don't do this just from your church planting or replanting. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday, we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off mission, so now they're unemployed. I mean, you. this will be the defining issue as to whether or not you succeed or fail. 
Mm. So the defining issue as to whether or not you're going to succeed or fail is whether or not you're willing to engage in blessed subtraction. And God, by his grace, is able to create a pile, a mountain of dead bodies behind your church bus. This isn't taught in Scripture. This is not biblical leadership. This is not at all what's described in Scripture regarding the pastoral office. This is something completely different. And at the core of all of this, well, funny enough, it's Blackaby and Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Movement's interpretation of Blackaby. This all has to do with, um, well, vision casting. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to play for you a series of sound bites that I've collected over the years in studying these guys so that you can hear what this is. This isn't biblical. This is not in, could, uh, part of the pastoral office. This is something completely foreign. It's alien to Scripture. And this is not a methodology that was taught or is being taught by Jesus and God. These guys claiming that it's coming from God, but it's not. Now, to remind you of what vision, you know, what, what, the reason why in these big mega churches you go to church, it's not to be fed the Word of God. Here's Creflo Dollar reminding us as to the reason why people supposedly go to church. Listen carefully. You know, you hear people say, well, why do you go to that church so I can be fed? You don't come here so you can be fed. You come here to help me and tap and fulfill his vision. That is, if God called you here, you hadn't been called so you can be fed the word. Now, if you get fed in the midst of it, that's good. But you've been called to find your part in bringing this vision to pass in the earth. That's why you've been called to the church. You haven't been called here, so I came here because I so I can get fed the word. It's so interesting how we come to church out of our own self. You didn't come here so you can get fed the word. Now, if you can get some word while you're here, that's a good too. But you came here because each of you have a piece and a part that you play in bringing this vision to pass. So if you're just kind of sitting around being fed, but not understanding that you have a part to play in this vision coming to pass, that's why God called you. When God calls a person to a church, you're called to that church to help that pastor fulfill that vision. Yeah, so don't go to church expecting to be fed. Yeah, you're there to help the pastor fulfill his vision. It's important to note that this is nowhere, nowhere, not one single verse in all of Scripture. You won't find it in the pastoral epistles. You won't find it in the Gospels. You won't find it in the book of Revelation or the prophets or the history or the Torah. Not one shred of evidence biblically supports this concept this is a foreign alien false teaching that has been smuggled in as the basis of the, all of the mega churches including driscoll's and tr including including uh, rick warren and bill hybels and all these other guys they all receive visions directly from god and uh, you know to kind of give you another example of this here is uh one of eric dykstra's uh, associate pastors talking about how at there at the Crossing Church in Elk River, Minnesota, they're all united under the vision that God gave Eric. Yeah, listen in. Yeah. Number two, we are united under the visionary. Now, the visionary here is Eric. The Crossing is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Eric. Yeah. And we will aggressively defend that vision. Now, what does that mean? You aggressively defend that. That means that we do church the way he wants us to do it. And me as a campus pastor, I can't go up to Zimmerman and decide that I'm going to preach on Sunday because that's not the vision that we have for this church 
that God gave to Eric. Mm -hmm. And we defend that when people go, well, maybe we should do it this way. And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God gave Eric this vision. We do it this way because we don't want to argue with God, basically. We don't want to be like, you know, Eric's not God. We're not saying Eric's God. He's not God. God. He's got a vision from God, and we have decided with our lives that we're going to follow that vision. Yeah, if you contradict the vision, you're contradicting God. You see how that works? And we're going to stick to that. And if we ever just decide that we don't want to be a part of that vision, then we can go find a church and serve somewhere else. And that's, that's okay. We're not telling anybody that they have to unite under this vision that, that Eric got from God. You can do whatever you want. But we think that it's a really cool vision. We're on board with it. And we're going to defend it. And we're going to stick to it. Yeah, so they're going to stick to the vision that Eric Dykstra got specifically from God. You contradict the vision. You're contradicting God. Now, this vision talk, by the way, should sound familiar. Here's uh, the audio uh, version of the so-called vision portion of Elevation Church. That's Stephen Furtick's church's website from their uh, their code that they have up here. Here, listen in. We are united under one vision. Elevation is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. We will aggressively defend our unity and that vision. Kind of a creepy voice there, but it gets the point across that they are all united under the vision that God gave Pastor Stephen Furtick. Now, it's important to note that, well, Mark Driscoll runs in the same crowd as Stephen Furtick and Eric Dykstra and Perry Noble and Rick Warren and all these guys. These are all visionary Fuhrers, leaders, right? Now, where does this come from? What What is the root of all of this? Now, I'm kind of glad that we're getting to this where we are because we've been spending many weeks working through the Blackaby um, <clears throat> curriculum so that you can hear the false teaching that makes up the basis of Blackaby's Experiencing God curriculum. But that's really what's at the heart of this uh, whole thing regarding vision casting. Here is Dan Sutherland teaching vision casting to a bunch of uh, pastors so that they can transition their churches from being traditional to being seeker-driven. And listen to what he says this is all about. Now, Henry Blackaby has taught me more about this idea than anyone else. How many of you have done Blackaby study experiencing God? Killer stuff. Killer killer stuff. You ought to do it every three or four years just to just to be reminded. Tell me the principle behind Blackaby's study. Those of you that have done it, what is it? Yeah, see what God's doing in the world and joining. And joining. Now here's what we do in our churches. We say, hey God, I've got a great plan for my church. Will you come down here and bless my plan? No. God has never done that. God will never do that. God stands instead way over here and says, well, I'm already blessing these things. Why don't you join me in what I'm already blessing? Oh, Lord, you don't understand. My plan's original. My plan's unique. My plan's mine. Won't you come bless my plan? Here's a key, key truth. It took me 20 years to grab this. God never joins us never he invites us to join him 
Hmm, I think Jesus joined us. But anyway, that so that's what's really the beating heart of this whole thing. The whole idea behind vision casting is that God has a vision for your church. In fact, here's Dan Sutherland giving us a quick definition of what a vision is uh, in, in this way of thinking. Listen in. Here's a definition of vision. Vision is a picture of what God wants to do. That's all it is. It's a picture of what God wants to do. So vision, in the way these vision casters think, it's a picture of what God wants to do. So you've got to you've got to find what He's blessing and join Him. And in order for a seeker-driven pastor to receive a vision from God, he has to first prove to his God. Uh, this is not the biblical God, by the way. He has to prove to his deity that he's worthy to receive the vision. And this is based upon some kind of a sliding scale, depending on how serious you are, as demonstrated through prayer and fasting and obedience and obsessing about the future. Yeah, if you don't believe me, here's Dan Sutherland explaining how that works. So this is the in the portion of his vision casting seminar where he talks about he's just gone on and on about how important it is to pray and to fast. And here's the cash-in statement uh, regarding why you got to be praying and fasting. I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to answer this question for me. Rate yourself from 1 to 100 on how much you're praying for the vision and the future of your church. Not the present, not the problems now. How much are you praying for the vision and the future of your church? If you're so busy with the present that you're not doing that at all, then that's one. If it's keeping you up late at night and getting, staying on your mind all through the day, that's a hundred. Rate yourself. If you're embarrassed by your number, add 50 to it. Write a number down, would you? I want everybody here to write a number down. If you don't like your number, write it in code. Your neighbor doesn't have to see it. Write a number down. Everybody got a number? Now, would you do this? Add a percentage sign after your number. A percentage sign. So how much you're praying and fasting and obsessing about the future, you know, what percentage of your time is brought, you know, is into that? If it's 50% of your time or 40% or 30% of your time, listen to this. And here's the wild statement. That's the maximum percent of what God wants to do you're ever going to see. So because you're not obsessed about the future, so if you're only 50% committed... God's only going to give you 50% of the vision. If I pray at a 25% level, then God can only do 25% of what he wants to do in my life and my church. So if you're only praying at 25%, yeah, well, God can only give you 25% of the vision. That's all there is to his hands are tied. He wants to, you know, he has this picture of what he wants to do with your church in the future. And he wants to give your pastor the vision. But if he's only praying at 25%, God can only give him 25% of the vision or that much of it. So that's a core component of this. So what's going on here, all of these seeker-driven guys, and Mark Driscoll being the head of the Acts 29 network, he teaches this. He teaches vision casting, that God has this picture of what he wants to do in a particular congregation or how he wants it done in a particular locale. He's he. This is what he teaches to the uh, church planters of the uh, Acts 29 network. Okay, and remember, these visions come directly from God. So, in the, I mean, the talk about a kind of a head trip that they get put you on here. Well, I got to get serious. I got to get serious about receiving this vision. 
so that you got to pray, you got to fast, you got to obsess about the future to prove that you're worthy to receive the whole vision. And then when you do, your job is to surround yourself with a leadership team, cast the vision to that leadership team, and their job is to get everybody in the church active and involved in getting behind the vision and making the vision happen. And what happens when it meets opposition? Well, got to remember, let me hear again uh, from Eric Dykstra's uh, associate pastor, his concern about opposing the vision. Listen again. Yeah. Number two, we are united under the visionary. Now, the visionary here is Eric. The crossing is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Eric. Yeah. And we will aggressively defend that vision. Now, what does that mean? You aggressively defend that. That means that we do church the way he wants us to do it. And me as a campus pastor, I can't go up to Zimmerman and decide that I'm going to preach on Sunday because that's not the vision that we have for this church that God gave to Eric. Mm -hmm. And we defend that when people go, well, maybe we should do it this way. And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God gave Eric this vision. We do it this way because we don't want to argue with God. Yeah, because we don't want to argue with God. Now, from Dan Sutherland's Vision Casting Church Transitions seminar, he goes on to explain how when he received a vision from God to do church for the unchurched at the church that's formerly known as Flamingo Road uh, Baptist Church down in Fort Lauderdale, that's the church now where Troy Gramling is the head leader and what a joke he is, but um, it's no longer called Flamingo Road, but yeah, it's called Potential Church. They're not really a church anymore. They're just a church in Potential. But and <clears throat> the point is, is that it was Dan Sutherland who claims to have received the vision from God to do church for the unchurched, right? And he goes on to explain uh, the opposition that he experienced uh, at the with the board, uh, the elder board at the time that he supposedly received this vision, and they, they during one of the meetings they they wanted to have a vote to go back to the way they were doing church, and listen to what Dan Sutherland says, paying close attention to again notice he received this vision from God he has to obey God, um so listen in so I said uh, I'm allowed as the moderator to speak to this and here's what I say I'm not going back. God's given us a new vision to do church for the unchurched, and I'm not going back. Now, you men can vote to take the church back, and if you vote yes, we want the church to go back to the way we used to do it. I will resign tonight. The other two pastors will resign in the morning. We'll go across the street to the empty field, rent a tent, put it up, and we'll do church for the unchurched next week right here in Fort Lauderdale because that's what God has called us to do. Now, you guys can vote however you want. But I've got to do this. Okay. So, hey, you, know, you guys can vote however you want, but God has given me a vision to do church for the unchurched, and i got to go through with this. To question the vision is to question God. So what does Dan Sutherland teach in his church transition seminar where he teaches vision casting? What do you do with those who oppose, question, or challenge the vision? Well... Here's Dan Sutherland and his uh, and a friend of his explaining what you do to those who oppose the vision. Now I grew up on the farm. Anybody else in here grew up on the farm? Anybody? Maybe y'all can help me. What do you do with a wolf? 
If you're herding sheep, what do you do with a wolf? Thank you. Shoot them. That's the answer. You know what we try to do? We try to convert the wolf. Oh, nice wolfie. So if you oppose the vision, you're a wolf. Okay, is this the biblical definition of a wolf? According to scripture, a wolf is somebody who masquerades as a Christian but isn't. It's somebody who teaches false doctrine but puts on the veneer of a Christian. Somebody who questions the vision of a pastor is now automatically challenging God and they are automatically put into the bucket of wolf. Why are you gnawing on my arm? That's it. Why dost thou gnaw on my neck? Yeah. Quit eating my sheep. If you be a good wolfie, we'll let you stay in our church. Shoot the dang wolf. Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Folks, I'm telling you, I've worked sheep. I have done the physical work of, of herding sheep. Any shepherd worth his salt carries a rifle and shoots the critters that eat his sheep. So there you go. You got to shoot the wolf. Now, this should sound familiar. We're seeing a pattern emerging now from these seeker-driven leaders. Um, see if you remember this from James McDonald talking about what to do with the factious person in the congregation. And that's defined as the person who challenges the vision or challenges the leadership. Here's James McDonald. And I'm releasing you to take a small portion of your church's budget, build a catapult, put it in the church parking lot, and load it regularly. I think we can shoot this one right out of our county. So build a catapult and load it regularly. Anybody who opposes the vision should be catapulted or threatened with arrest for trespassing like I was. But um, now you should understand what's going on here. Let me play Driscoll again. Hear the quote again with all of this in mind. He is a visionary leader. He has received a vision from God. To challenge the vision is to challenge God. If you challenge the vision, you're challenging God. Therefore, you're a wolf and you have got to go. Here's what I've learned. You, you cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. So you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. There's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain. There's not a word in Scripture that teaches this, not a single word. But you know, the Bible does talk about when it is appropriate to separate 
from people who claim to be brothers. Let me give you a few examples. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So Matthew 18 gives us the basically the procedure to follow biblically in our churches when people are persisting in sin and refuse to repent. But where in Scripture does it say that it's a sin to question a so-called vision that a pastor claims to have received from God to do church differently? It doesn't. It doesn't at all. In fact, Scripture makes it clear if someone claims to have a word of knowledge or a prophecy, that all prophecies are to be tested against the word of God. But these guys don't allow that. That's to be disloyal. That's to be a wolf. And you see, there's a problem here. So the Bible does give us a, a discipline you know, procedure to follow for those who are persisting in sin. But these guys aren't following that procedure at all. If it were a sin to question the vision of a visionary leader, then the, the procedure would be this. You go to your brother and tell him his fault. And if he listens, you've gained him. If he does not listen, you have to take two or other, two or more. And then you have to tell it to the whole church. The goal, by the way, of church discipline is not a pile of dead bodies behind a church. The goal of church discipline is repentance and forgiveness of sins, that the person would actually be restored. Okay, moving along to this. 2 John, verse 7. There's only one chapter in 2 John, by the way. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver in the Antichrist. So it's talking about here about somebody who claims to be a Christian but teaches false doctrine and heresy. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the, in the teaching has both the Father and the Son and if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Hmm. Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Well, here's the thing. When it comes to biblical separation, when it comes to biblical discipline, the, 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 the presenting problem, there's two of them, biblically. Unrepentant sin, when and the person persists in, in that sin unrepentantly when confronted. That's the first issue. The second is, is that they're teaching false doctrine, a doctrine that is contrary to what has been taught in Scripture, contrary to what the people have received. In those cases, the person who who is teaching false doctrine is being divisive, and they're to be put out of the church for the sake of protecting the flock. 
Nowhere in Scripture do you find any admonition to get rid of somebody who doesn't agree with the vision of the pastor. Nor do you ever find a single passage that says the reason why people go to church is for them to make the vision of the pastor come to fruition and they're not there to be fed the Word of God. Because Scripture makes it clear the job of a pastor is to preach the Word. Jesus himself admonishing Peter to feed his sheep. So the question is, who are you going to believe? Because these guys have set themselves up as visionary demagogues. To challenge them, you risk having the bus run over you, becoming part of the mountain of dead bodies. To question their vision is to find yourself thrown off the bus, catapulted out of the church parking lot, or shot as a wolf. This is not taught in Scripture. This is an ecclesiastical heresy. These methods are not compatible with biblical Christianity or the pastoral office. These men are, by definition, then, false prophets and wolves. And their ideas, their methodologies, and their doctrine, and them, they themselves, unless they repent of this, they are to be thrown out, and they are to be shunned, and they are to be treated as wolves and, and heretics and not as brothers. These methods are not conducive with Scripture. They are antithetical to it, and these men are not pastors. They are wolves. And I am not speaking in hyperbole. That is exactly what Scripture teaches us regarding these men. This is a shameful and disgusting way for anybody who calls himself a pastor, yet alone a pastor to pastors, to model this kind of just disgusting, egregious beating and mistreatment of God's people, his blood-bought Christians, and basically saying, by the grace of God, I'm going to have a mountain of dead bodies behind our church. That is beyond the pale. Folks, Mark Driscoll is not building the kingdom of God. He's building his own kingdom. And his own kingdom is contrary to God's kingdom and to Christ's. He needs to be brought to repentance and pray for forgiveness of sins for this evil that he has brought on the church. This is disgusting and shameful and brings shame and disrepute on the name of Christ. And those pastors who follow after Mark Driscoll should know better. As men who are entrusted with the very preaching and teaching of the Word of God, they should know that none of this, none of it, can be supported from God's Word, and that this is absolutely antithetical to a crucified and risen Savior who loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that He should die for our sins, not pile us up as bodies behind a church, church bus. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to listen to two good sermons by two men who are real pastors. Neither one of them has had a vision, and they faithfully preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins Sunday after Sunday. Looking forward to hearing that. If you'd like to email me, you know how to reach me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or follow me on Twitter at Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Chris Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen. And I use my bamboo stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's going to happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunners' yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunners. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support.
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Gotta clear my head. And nothing does that better than good preaching by pastors who preach Christ from every text and who aren't visionary leaders who understand that their job is to feed and care for God's sheep with God's word and the sacraments. Let's cue up the music. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we got two of them. Uh, the first one is from Riverbend Lutheran Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Pastor Cy Van Manen presiding. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is Never Abandoned. Never Abandoned. And then after listening to that, we're going to go down to Faith Lutheran in Capistrano Beach, California. And listen to Pastor Jeremy Rohde preach a sermon entitled, Heaven Isn't a Democracy. And trust me, it's nothing like what we heard from any of the vision casters. That's not what you're going to hear from Jeremy Rohde. Something completely different. Now, um, Pastor Van Manen, just so you know, uh, the, the gospel text is from the Gospel of John chapter 17, but I'm going to let him actually do the work of introducing the text and preaching from it. So let's kill the music, and without any further ado, here's Pastor Cy Van Manen and his sermon entitled, Never Abandoned. Here we go. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, which you heard a few moments ago. Dear friends in Christ, in November 2001, I read about a newborn baby girl who became known as Baby Rebecca Mary. Found dead, apparently, from exposure to the frigid temperatures that blanketed the area around Halloween in a cemetery near Boston. She was found by local school children. This story broke my heart. Unfortunately, it was not the first story about a baby that I'd heard upsetting stories of abandonment. I read about one baby found alive in a trash bin in Connecticut. Another baby left to drown in a toilet in a New York courthouse. I recall one story of a young couple who stood trial for killing their newborn. When I was in Thunder Bay, there was a man who was traveling across Canada, and he left a set of twins in his hotel room, and when he came back, they were dead. And when I hear these stories, I find myself asking the question, how could anyone do this? How could anyone abandon their children, their family, their relatives, or their friends? I can think of many things that make my blood boil, things that leave me cold or angry. But the one that really seems to get me is stories about abandonment, betrayal, turning your back on somebody when they need you the most. To be abandoned is to be left alone with no one to turn to, left out in the cold to face the harshness of this world by yourself. Two men were out hunting in the northern of Canada, northern area of Canada, and suddenly one yelled, 
and the other looked up to see a grizzly charging at them. The first one started to frantically put on his running shoes, and his friend anxiously asked, What are you doing? Don't you know you can't outrun a grizzly bear? I don't have to outrun the grizzly, he said. I just have to outrun you. I think this is a good illustration of people in the world today. Because we live in a world that says, look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Your brother and your neighbor only matter if you are already taken care of. I know what it is like to be alone. I have had people abandon me and perhaps I deserved it, but it did not feel very good. I've been in places where I look around and I'm in trouble and all my friends have hightailed it out of there. But I've done the same as well. Being alone is the worst feeling. There are no words or ways to describe the emptiness or fear that comes from being abandoned and alone. The gospel lesson for today, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays because he is leaving. He will no longer physically be present among his disciples, and the disciples are scared. Scared of the Jews, scared of the task set before them, scared of being alone without their Lord and their Savior. But Christ made some promises to them that held them fast in the hard times. He asked the Father to keep them safe, keep them in the faith, just as he has done. He promises his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, which they received on Pentecost. And Jesus gives them the promise, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. He says it right before he ascends into heaven. Although Jesus is taken up into heaven, he is God. And he does not leave his disciples or his people ever. He never goes back on his promises. And he says to us, never will I leave you. Never shall I forsake you. God has put people in your life to help you. Sometimes friends, sometimes family, sometimes strangers, sometimes members at Riverbend Lutheran Church, sometimes pastors. But regardless, people may fail. Sometimes we fail because we see the right way to do things. Sometimes we get scared. Sometimes we don't know what to do. But God never fails. He never abandons, never leaves. Even when you are angry with him or hate him, he loves you. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. So that when our bodies abandon us and betray us, we will not just be worm food and die. We will live for eternity in heaven with our Savior. Christ is our true friend who has never and will never abandon us when everyone else has. There was a British publication that once offered a prize for the best definition of friend. Among the thousands of answers received were the following. One who multiplies joys, divides griefs, and whose honesty is invaluable. Another one, one who understands our silence. Another, a volume of sympathy bound up in cloth. Another, a watch that beats true for all time and never runs down. But the winning definition was this. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. When the whole world is on its way out and everyone has left. Not only has Christ never left, but he has always been there and will never leave you because he loves you. Jesus says that the world hates his disciples. They were not popular because they brought the good news that Jesus was the savior of the world by dying for the sins of the people in this world. Even though he did the greatest thing ever, people are fickle. 
And they turn their backs easily on God. But God does never turn his back on people. One of the all-time greats in baseball was a man named Babe Ruth. His bat had the power of a cannon and his record of 714 home runs remained unbroken until... Who came along, baseball fans? Square what? Oh, Hank Aaron, thank you. Hank Aaron came along. The Babe was the idol of sports fans, but in time, age took its toll. And his popularity began to wane. Finally, the Yankees traded him to the Braves, and in one of his last games in Cincinnati, Babe Ruth began to falter. He struck out, made several misplays that allowed the Reds to score five runs in one inning. As the babe walked towards the dugout, chin down and dejected, there rose from the stands an enormous storm of boos and catcalls. Some fans actually shook their fists at this legend. Then a wonderful thing happened. A little boy jumped over the railing, and with tears streaming down his cheeks, he ran out to the great athlete. Unashamedly, he flung his arms around the babe's legs and held on tightly. Babe Ruth scooped him up, hugged him, and set him down again. Patting him gently on the head, he took the boy's hand, and the two of them walked off the field together. Jesus did not wait for you to come to him. He came to you in the waters of your baptism, just as he did today for little Madeline. He came to her today with nail-pierced hands outstretched to hold her in his arms unto life everlasting. He called you to be his own in the blessed waters of your own baptism so that you would know that he will always be with you to the very end of the age, that you and Jesus might walk off this field of life together. Your sins are forgiven. Salvation is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now let us pray. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds and in through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Simple, sweet, to the point. Jesus will never leave or forsake you. Okay, second sermon today comes to us via Faith Lutheran in Capistrano Beach, California, and it's the Pastor, uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde presiding, and his sermon is entitled, Heaven Isn't a Democracy. Here we go. He may not have red horns or a pointed tail. He may not carry a pitchfork or sit on your shoulder whispering temptations into your ear. He might not be anything at all like the cartoon images that pop into your mind. But real? That he is. If it's true that the devil's greatest trick is convincing the world that he doesn't exist we'd have to say he's doing a pretty good job. After all, everything seems to have an explanation, doesn't it? Whether it's genetics or social engineering, nature or nurture, there's no need to believe in Satan if every evil can be explained away by science. There's no reason to confess your sins. No reason to even bother with, the devil made me do it, when you can just blame mommy or your genes instead. 
the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and hopefully it's foolishness with you as well. Did Jesus believe in Satan? No, he didn't. He didn't have to believe in Satan. He knew him face to face. After his baptism in the Jordan, when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, Jesus was driven into the desert to confront the tempter head on, to do what the first Adam could not do. From our Lord's conception to his death, from his death to his resurrection, from his resurrection to this very moment, all of Jesus' work is nothing less than the fulfilling of God's very first gospel promise. Jesus is crushing the serpent's head under his heel. We do not war against flesh and blood, Paul writes, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Not just Satan, but the whole host of fallen angels. How on earth did they ever come to be the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over our world? We voted them in. When Adam and Eve put their lips to the fruit, they might as well have been kissing Satan's feet. They chose to believe the lies of the devil instead of the Word of God. And with that, our race turned its back on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and cast our ballots for Satan instead. It's been the same with every single human being. The same with you. Did God really say? Did God really say that He is your God? That you must not worry, but trust only in Him? What? With the bills piling up and your life about to spiral out of control? Did God really say that He loves you? And yet... He allows you to suffer loneliness and illness, to be widowed or divorced, to watch the years pass by as your health slowly falls apart. Did God really say that you must not gratify your greed, that you must not satisfy the lust of your flesh, that you must not allow yourself to despise another person or even vent about them to your spouse? Did God really say that the wages of all your sin is death? Then let me remind you of the payday that's coming your way. So goes the temptation of Satan. The voice of the serpent still hissing in our ears. Not just Satan, but the whole host of fallen angels. All of them hell-bent on turning your heart into a little embassy of hell. What should God do for us? 
Well, not a thing. We're the ones that voted the spiritual forces of evil into office. With thought, word, and deed, we cast our votes every day. What should God do for us? What does God do for us? He reminds us, in no uncertain terms, that His creation, His kingdom, is no democracy at all. And thanks be to God, we don't get our way. He sends His Son, the true King of this world, sends His Son to crush the serpent's head. He sends His Son to drown the demonic Pharaoh. He sends His Son to wage war, not against flesh and blood, but against the demonic rulers and authorities and every spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. And His Son, He makes into our one true King, lifting Him up before the whole world on the throne of the cross and crowning Him with the crown of thorns. Here is a strange king, a king that instead of demanding his people lay down their lives for him, he lays down his own life for the life of the people. He rules a kingdom of grace. His currency is divine mercy. He bestows citizenship by water and the Spirit, just as he did for little Michael. He feeds his people with bread that is his body, with wine that is his blood. All of creation is his. The kingdom is his. For God has chosen this Jesus to be our king, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The whip and scourge marred him beyond human semblance. He is also fairer and more kingly than Saul. He is the son of David, and yet he is also David's Lord, the shepherd king who slays the Goliath of hell. Though his words are despised by men, he is wiser even than Solomon, for he is wisdom incarnate, the Word of God made flesh. He is your true king because he is your true Savior. He is not king because you chose him or elected him. On the contrary, you are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You are royal because he is royal. Not that you should be free from suffering, but that you might be counted worthy of suffering with him. You are holy because He is holy. Not that you have finally attained moral perfection, but that you might be declared righteous and holy in His sight. You belong to God. Not because of any goodness in you, but because Jesus has bought you with His own precious blood. Christ is your King 
And that's quite unconditional. You are his blood-bought, blood-washed Christian. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And even those little titles of his proclaim the gospel to you. If he is King of kings, who are those other kings? And if he is Lord of lords, who are those other lords? The scriptures say that if we endure, we also will reign with him. The scriptures say that we have overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. The scriptures say that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet as well. These are the words and the promises of God. How then should we deal with Satan and all his fallen angels? Martin Luther gives this advice. When the devil comes during the night to plague me, I give him this answer. Devil, I must sleep now, for this is God's command. Work during the day, sleep at night. If he does not stop vexing me, but faces me with my sins, I reply, Dear devil, I have heard your record, but I, I have committed far more sins which don't even stand on your record. Put them down too. How can Luther speak so boldly? Because Luther listens not to Satan, but to the Word of God. And God Himself says, I am He who blots out your transgressions, and I will remember your sins no more. So go ahead, Satan. Write them all down and take them to God so that he can promptly blot them out with Jesus' blood. God isn't against you. God is for you. His war is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness. And that explains, too, why Jesus reacts the way he does when his own flesh and blood, when his own family says that he is out of his mind. And when flesh and blood, the scribes of Jerusalem, accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebub, Jesus called them to him, not to condemn them, but to teach them. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asks. The first thing he teaches them is that their thinking is all wrong. A kingdom divided, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus hasn't come to divide his kingdom, to divide this world with Satan. One person for you, Satan, one for me. Oh, that's a hodl rookie card. I'll take that one. <laughs> Jesus hasn't come to make deals with Satan at all. In his own words, he has come to bind the strong man, to enter his house, and to plunder all his goods. This means that Jesus has come to bind Satan, to grab hold of you, put you safely in his sack, and steal you right out from under Satan's nose. The second thing that Jesus does 
is he warns the scribes. They have said that he has an unclean spirit, when in fact the spirit poured out on him in baptism was the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who calls sinners with the gospel and enlightens us with his gifts. The man who has been convinced of this truth by God, who knows the gospel is true, and yet out of hatred for God, calls this work of the Spirit the work of the devil, such a man will never believe, will never be forgiven, will never be saved. The third and final thing that Jesus teaches is that his family is not related by flesh and blood, but by faith. Looking at those around him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, you're not just anyone to Jesus. You're not just one of millions or a dime a dozen. As if you were the only one in the entire world. He bears your sins and sheds His holy blood. You're not your genetics or even your upbringing. To Jesus, you are family. We are one family. Our Father, we pray. And as Jesus taught this prayer, the final thing we ask our Father is that he would deliver us from the evil one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Two biblically faithful sermons by two biblically faithful pastors who are there to feed, care for, and protect God's sheep, not their visions. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>